You're listening to the Pastoral Calling Podcast with Matt Loverin and me, Jim Shamaria. Our goal is to start a conversation about life and leadership in the local church. Just like riding a bicycle. Here we are, back again. Welcome back to the Pastoral Calling Podcast. I'm Jim. And I'm Matt. <laughs> and we are back with another episode. Only a year and a half later. A year and a half later. At this rate, our next episode will be in two years. Yeah, we're we stretching wait it out. An extra six months in between yep. each episode. We don't want to promise anything here, but our goal is to get back on a somewhat regular production recording schedule here. A whole new season of episodes. Yeah. We've had uh, a few people, a, a few of our faithful listeners, so out of the six of you, uh, two of you or three of you have said, hey, We'd like some more episodes. So we thought, we like doing episodes. Let's do episodes. Half of the audience is clamoring for more episodes. (laughs) So our budget was renewed. Yeah. It was approved. Uh, Showrunner got the green lights on everything. We're going to be on Disney Plus. That would be fantastic. People would sign up to Disney Plus just to hear us. Six million in one day. (laughs) But uh, it's Princess been, Calling it's, Podcast. <laughs> this is a spin-off. <laughs> uh, but None of that's going to be on the actual it's episode. It's good for us to uh, get back into this. And uh, we got some things to talk about. We don't have a guest today, but we thought we'd kind of ease back into it. Just kind of catching up a little bit. Of, Where are they now? Yeah, that's us. We are the they. Uh, but it is kind of, uh, speaking of seasons, we are right in the middle yeah, truly the middle of the Advent season uh, in our churches. Do you guys do anything? We've maybe talked about this on the pod before. We don't do Advent in our church. My wife, though, has a couple of friends who um, just began kind of circulating an Advent reading calendar and working through that together as friends. Cool. And so it's on my radar. Yeah. Yeah, we've been, it's for the past, I don't know, 10 years, I guess, or so at our church has been a pretty regular season for us. And uh, these last few years, I've been leaning more into kind of the theological uh, nuance of the season, which is thinking as much about the future and the return of Christ as we do about the birth of Christ, because that's really what the, the Advent season is about. It's about looking back at Christ's first coming as a reminder promise of Christ's second coming. And so it's interesting to preach Christmas sermons that aren't really about little baby Jesus born in the hay, but are about Christ returning as the judge to judge the earth and to do all that stuff. But, um, it's been, it's been fun. And and I'm, of course, I know we've talked before, I use the lectionary now for my teachings and, um, those prophetic texts are a few weeks ago, we preached through Romans 13, the hour is coming. It's closer. Your salvation is closer now than it was before as like the first Christmas sermon of the year. Um, so it's so interesting the way that those texts come up in surprisingly unadvent ways. Yeah. But very adventy too, you know, like once you kind of like, start thinking in those terms, you start to recognize that stuff all throughout the scripture. And it, it brings a, a much, it brings a fresh meaning to 
the Christmas season. I know for me personally, I think I'm just finally getting that after doing this for however many years now I've been doing this sort of lectionary advent thing for three, four years. I'm just kind of now starting to get it and starting to get the importance of the eschatological part of Christmas and the future hope of, of that comes along with Christmas. And it, it gives depth. So preaching at Christmas time isn't just about the usual Christmas yeah. characters yeah. or the usual Christmas passages, yep. but you're expanding from that, yep. even though you're in that season yeah. and yet all of scripture is speaking to that. And I like the way you talked about hope and memory and the way that those get compressed in the Advent season so that there's yeah. this anticipation for what's coming, not just in the birth of Christ, but anticipation for God's future. And I think we miss a lot of that because we don't have a good bridge to go from our time. Usually what we do is we think, okay, Christmas is busy and I need to slow down and Advent's the way I slow down. Mm. But there's no real specific guidance on how to do that. Yeah. It's just, I know I shouldn't only talk to my kids about Santa Claus. I should do something else. But <laughs> what does that actually look like? And, and that's another interesting thing for me. This Christmas season is the first time I have a child who's really like aware and cognizant of what's going on. Isla just turned three in September. So she's, you know, she's all excited about Christmas and Christmas lights and the candy and all of that stuff that comes along with it. And I'm trying to learn how to kind of balance that obviously and, and kind of keep bringing her back to the birth of Jesus and realizing how intentional I have to be about doing that because that is not the narrative, right? That's being like already you ask her what, what is Christmas about? And she's going to say Santa Claus. <laughs> and so like having, just being very aware of that and like, okay, let's, you know, let's find a way to be, be there. But she is really into, uh, Reese's peanut butter cups in her advent calendar. That's a, that's a top memory so far. That's a win yeah. when the, one of those turns up. Yep. So that's, that's a good one. How do you, how have you done that with your kids? You got, I mean, Adeline's what now? Six, seven, five? Adeline's five. And so then our oldest, Kaylin, is 13. And there's a range of awareness between excitement for Christmas and um, resisting the trends of the season, resisting the cultural, yeah. you know, kind of... Uh, messaging that you get at Christmas time. And so I, I feel like my kids are pretty savvy. They can see it. I caught flack from my 10 year old son, um, who, who watched like you do. I mean, you, there's a new Netflix Christmas movie and yeah. it's like the mailman and he's stationed at the North pole <laughs> postal carrier, right, sorry, right, letter carrier. Right. <laughs> and he's stationed at the North pole and he discovers that St. Nicholas or Santa Claus or whoever is living in his village, like secretly tucked away. And I don't even, I didn't watch it. It's probably <laughs> terrible, but I had the kids watch it and my mom watched it and like, well, this is a movie that doesn't have anything to do with Christmas. What, what are you thinking? <laughs> You're raising a, you bunch of, a bunch of Grinches over bunch there. Of Scrooges. Yeah. yeah. And at the same time, my five-year-old daughter will get into an argument with the kids in her preschool class over whether or not Santa Claus even exists. <laughs> and so she got into a, into an argument with her classmate named Vladimir, of all names. <laughs> Sorry if you're listening to this. 
chances are he's not. Big bad Vlad. <laughs> and she insists to Vladimir that Santa is not real. And he, like, this escalates and the teacher has to calm them down and kind of play a mediator role and try to teach my daughter that some people teach their kids that right. Santa exists for a certain right. amount of time. And then Vladimir calls her a liar and it blows up again. <laughs> like, Vladimir called me a liar today. Well... Some people can't handle the truth, I guess. <laughs> uh, that does not really answer your question well, about but, what we're doing to positively well, but I think th cultivate. I think what that does remind me of, though, is like, so like I grew up in a very, obviously a, a very Christ-centered Christian household, yet we still did all the stuff. Like, And I think that there's value to tradition and and these things that happen only during this period of the year right we only drink eggnog during this period of the year we only watch these movies during this period of the year and while they may or may not be directly teaching the the story of jesus which by the way we can get into a whole episode of how unhistorically correct our nativity sets are so maybe that's a story there or a pod, an episode there. Jim and Matt steal Christmas, <laughs> steal nativity. I like it. But anyways, so like, I think there is still value to this idea of like adding significance to this season, even if it's not directly connected to the birth of Jesus, it still reminds us that there's something important here. And uh, I think that's a very, that's a very significant thing to do, right? Adding meaning to this moment in this time, which allows us to realize like this is an important time of year. For Christians especially, this is an important time of year. This is the beginning of our year. This is, you know, like the moment that sets everything into into motion. So I think there's a good balance there that we can we can have. There's a rhythm to it, and even if it's just putting up the tree, getting out the ornaments, putting up the lights, uh, the culture is aware. Yeah. And you have these arguments that are out there in the culture that Christmas is starting too early. These are people who are not Christians, right. but if the Christmas music's on the radio too early right. or if the decorations are in the store too early... Hobby Lobby, we're talking to you. I think as humans, September we, need, 6th. we need those rhythms. And there's a deep human sense of time and seasons. And when we start to push against the yeah. boundaries of some of that, there's something in us as humans that resists... Yeah that season getting too long because we know that it ruins the specialness yeah. of it if yeah. we if we stretch if, it out if it's always christmas right it's nothing christmas you know and that's that whole uh c.s lewis right in narnia always winter but never christmas is you can handle winter when there's something at the end of it but when it's just winter 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 the snowball fights get old after a while unless you're in michigan and christmas is right that at the is, beginning that is winter. correct and that's a whole nother story well uh hopefully your uh, your Christmas, your Advent season is meaningful with you guys. I know we're probably going to get out and do the old Christmas light tour through Granville sometime soon. We got one of those uh, Christmas light fight houses. Have you ever seen that show where they like? I've do, not seen they that They do show. like the crazy everything's synced up to the radio station and it's all blinking. We got one of those a few blocks from our house, so uh, I walked by it with my dog yesterday. It's surprisingly less fun when you can't hear what's going on and it's just a. Uh, nausea-inducing <laughs> flashing of lights while you're walking your dog, but... I'm sure Stanford got a lot out of it. Yeah, he was, yeah, tis, tis the season. 
that's big season stuff, little season stuff, right? That's Advent season. But uh, we also talk about seasons I know in life, right? We go through these these periods, and it's been a while since we've been on this podcast, and I think uh, 18 months of seasons in our life. What what have you been up to, Matt? What are some some things that have been going on in your life uh, over the last little bit? Yeah, so a lot's happened in the last year and a half. I think the biggest thing, if we if we talked with Joe last time uh, in the summer of 2018, it wasn't much longer after that, maybe a month after that, that my mom was diagnosed with lung cancer. Mm. And so that, for me, kicked off a really uh, long, I would say, grieving process that's still underway. Yeah. Uh, it was the first time that I thought to myself, okay, I really need to, to seek out a counselor and pursue my own mental and emotional health, knowing yeah. that this is a season of life with a, a parent that was a stage four cancer diagnosis. And so this is a terminal diagnosis, even though it, um, my mom's still living and uh, is, is doing as well as she can be at this point. Yeah. But it, it, was came in the midst of lots of changes. Uh, at the same time, I was uh, taking a step back from Grace Christian University, which had just become Grace Christian <laughs> University, and it was a really strange season of life where I felt myself um, really grieving, for whatever reason, the loss of Grace Bible College hmm. and the transition to Grace Christian University, even though nothing had changed yeah. except the branding and the logo, like the yeah. mission's the same, the values yeah. are the same, the curriculum's the same, the people are the same. It was really, uh, it was really, really hard and maybe borderline traumatic for hmm. me. And I was unprepared for how in emotionally intense that yeah. was going to be. And so in the midst of that, I, um, stepped away, uh, with, with, in good conversations with, um, the provost of the university and said, um, I need some time away. I need to, my mom has this cancer diagnosis. I need to kind of collect myself. And I was able to continue teaching at Grace and then also do some additional coaching at Eighth Day Gym that we've talked about in the past. But your teaching was not in a like leadership right. position. So you were I, just kind I of just been, a teacher, <laughs> just I, a prophet. That's prof. right. I had been the... Uh, associate Dean of Graduate Studies and so I stepped away from the administrative part of the role and I kept teaching in the grad program and my undergraduate classes but um, stepped away from the administrative duties and responsibilities that were like getting to be pretty stressful at that in that season of life um, and uh, ironically I picked up a whole bunch of administrative duties at HHM <laughs> so I found myself administrating and running customer service and running accounts and I was coaching and I was doing lots of things that I really enjoyed, but then I had, so I tried to take a step away and ended up adding essentially two 30 hour a week jobs to my one 40 hour a week job. <laughs> and I haven't that, taken math for a while, but I know. Yeah, that was, work. that was not sustainable. Um, and so everyone, uh, what I'm so blessed by is that everyone in that whole process from, from my coworkers to my students to, um, my supervisors at Grace, to my colleagues at Eighth Day Gym, and the owner um, of the gym, who'd be a great podcast guest. Joe? Someday. Yep, you know him. Joe, if you're listening, we want you. On the pod. 
everyone was so gracious to me and maybe it was in part because your mom has cancer and you're going through a difficult <laughs> time of life and uh, I hope that it's the closest thing to a midlife crisis that I'll ever have but um, talk to us in five years yeah we'll see <laughs> stay tuned I think one of the Pulls things up in a Miata. one of the things that was really transformative though is um, when uh, you and I uh, were in Denver yeah. for the ETS um, in 2018 it was around November at that time and and it was kind of not quite peaking yet, but I think it, we we're on the on the uptrend of the unsustainability of what I was doing, kind of yeah. peaking. And it was through one of those conversations that I was really able to understand and appreciate that my place was here at Grace and at an even deeper level. And so late into the spring, I was asked to come back into the the dean role of Grace Christian University, not over graduate studies, but really actually over the whole biblical studies area, which um, was uh, difficult, challenging, and complicated uh, for for different reasons. But uh, I felt ready yeah. at the time to do that, and the timing seemed right, and so moved into the season of overseeing all of biblical studies at Grace, which I hope has been good. I, I have sensed that it's been good, and that my leadership's been valuable. At the same time, this is nuts when I think about all that we've gone through, but we went through the process of moving my mom from her condo into our house. And so we, this is at a period where she was going through chemotherapy and she was really, really sick from chemo. And we thought, okay, this is, this is going to be a really difficult season. And if, if there's a good time, there may be no good time to do this. Yeah. So we we did remodeling in our house. We made a space for her to live in our downstairs in our house. We downsized all of her stuff. We sold her condo. We brought her to live with us. And so she's been living with us for nine months now. Mm. Um, pretty close. And she's doing as well physically as, as we could hope for. Um, and so we're really thankful That's for awesome. that. I'm yeah. sure it's kind of like every day is... A blessing, a gift, you know, because you mm -hmm. guys don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and to um, have her spend time with the grandkids, even right. at Christmas, we have a Christmas where she's with us right. in the house for this Christmas season, and um, and to see our kids, we hope mo like model those values of you know caring for your aging parents and um, seeing them through to the end of life. I think culturally, there's a real temptation to kind of push people aside and let them be by themselves yep. or in a care facility. Yep. And I would say not that there's anything wrong with that, right. but that for us and, and what we value, this seemed like the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. You were kind of talking about <clears throat> going away and then coming back uh, to your, your work at the university. And, and I was thinking of the last chapter in, uh, Eugene Peterson, this is a first Peterson reference of uh, the new season. In the last chapter of Eugene Peterson's The Contemplative Pastor, he talks about his uh, sabbatical year that he went on. Um, he was 30 years or whatever into ministry, and, and he went on this sabbatical. And he talks about coming back and how there was this renewed um, 
freshness that he had for his ministry after this time away. Yet also there is a renewed, he, he referred to it as kind of a, a boldness from his congregation. They'd been without a pastor for a year and they realized that they could do it on their own, you know, to some degree that they, they didn't need him um, in, a, in a healthy way. And so after that, that time away, uh, really a, a desert time for him, he comes back and is in like this really fresh time of ministry where there's still challenges, but there's, there's just a, a newness to it. It, it kind of sounds like there was a similar thing for you. While yours may not have been an intentional sabbatical of let's get away and refresh and come back, um, how did that time away kind of change your perspective on things when you came back? Are there ways that you look at your work now that you didn't before? Are there, uh, you know, that's that's a big question, but. Yeah, it's definitely true that my perspective was changed. I don't know if I've had a chance to really sort through what exactly that perspective change is. I guess I would say I've, in the past year, really tried, and this is part of my own personal growth, really tried to be more, it sounds, it sounds, um, kind of trite, but to be more present and to be, um, emotionally there wherever I am. Yeah. And I think in the past or even now, my tendency will be just naturally to kind of check out and observe what's going on around me rather than really experience what's going on Hmm. around me and let myself feel what's going on around me. Hmm. And so when I came back into my work, I felt like I had the same level of insight, understanding, memory, all the things that make me like I come kind of good at what I do, but then also a heightened level of emotional hmm. awareness so that which maybe you didn't have which you, I didn't you didn't have. tap into before and I think it's part of the grieving process with my mom it's part of um, you know pursuing marriage and then understanding okay guess what your your mother-in-law is coming to live with us and that's not always <laughs> the easiest relationship as we all know so you all in the audience can imagine what that would be like and <laughs> We've seen everybody loves Raymond. We maybe have a great relationship with your mother-in-law. I know I do, but I don't know if that's true for necessarily the wives who are out there who are listening to this. But being learning to become more um, emotionally aware of what's going on around me, and then bringing that level of feeling and experience, say, to my teaching, yeah, where. I may have a, a lesson planned or, or um, I think in the past I would do this, but it was more like when I'm teaching theology now, I will say, let's make what we're doing in this class theology. Yeah. Let's not talk about theology where it's an intellectual exercise, but let's see if we can't create the conditions in the classroom to experience God together in this moment so that we're all present together contemplating God and experiencing God. We're doing, we're, we're doing the theology, but we're experiencing it together. We were talking about this not too long ago when we were talking about the sermon and a profound thing for me has been thinking about the sermon as an event, as not just a, a static object that I speak and people listen to, but 
the living and active nature of this thing that's happening in this place at this time. And I think that's a lot of what you're talking about. Uh, understanding the value of like the people in this place that are hearing and experiencing are, are, are also a living and active part of the movement of the word of God. And whether it's, it's a teaching a theology class or it's a sermon and being present in that. And, and I think our conversation came up because I had this one really weird sermon event moment where like I was much more emotionally into it than I generally am. And I wasn't intending to do that. It just kind of happened. And like the experience that that was not just for you, but for them. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And like trying to think like, okay, so what do we do? Do we just say, okay, that was a one-time thing and don't expect this to happen again. Or is there value to intentionally kind of seeking to bring my emotional self into my teaching as much as I bring my intellectual self. And, uh, that's something I'm still processing and working through, but I think we kind of talked about a lot of these same things when we had that conversation. And that's kind of, I think what you have been experiencing in your, in your teaching. Yeah, very much so. And it's something I was challenged to do more of by my counselor, which is to pursue that experiencing of life rather than just observing or describing or defining it. Hmm. I've also been challenged to do it in my in my mentoring conversations with my mentor, uh, Kevin Krauss, who's hmm. in Australia. Good day, mate. Down under. Putting out the shrimp on the barbie. Tops. Marmite. No, Vegemite. <laughs> we are going strong there until <laughs> that happened. Out back. <laughs> So maybe some editing that yeah, happens here okay. at this point. That converse, those conversations with, with Kevin in particular, and the strangeness of here he is in Australia, it's midday there, here I am in, in West Michigan, it's 11 p.m., and yet we're able to be present with each other and have powerful God-focused conversations mm. around these really important themes of life. And experiencing that has has translated to well, if that can happen in like over the internet, yeah. Why should it not be able to happen face to face with my wife or with my friends or with my students? And I think that has brought additional, I would say, edge to my confidence. Yeah. Like I'm able to bring additional challenge. I'm able to bring additional. Courage, compassion to these conversations, because I'm less guarded in in myself. Like I'm not. I don't feel the need to protect myself anymore. It's so interesting the relationship that we create between truth and emotion. And I think sometimes there's this. I I I, I know with my. St- students and I was teaching a pastoral care class this semester and when we were talking about some of this stuff like how much can you trust your gut and your emotion on things and a lot of their responses you can't because the heart is deceitful above all things they would quote that scripture and kind of create this this enmity between our emotion and what is truth 
And I wonder, I, I, I know that a lot of times this is kind of how we're taught to preach and teach to some degree, that we do want to be emotional, but we want to make sure that our emotions are not uh, misleading. And I think there's truth to that, right? Because um, there, yeah, there is truth that we can overly emote things or allow our experience at this particular moment to shape kind of our view of things. Yet at the same time, there again is that idea of the livingness of the word that it speaks to this moment where you are at in a powerful way and it's okay to to be in this moment right it's okay to allow scripture to speak to you where you are with your feelings and loves and hates and fears and all of that stuff and we don't have to separate the two like you said let's describe truth and that description of truth is must be different than what I'm feeling right now. And there's, there's sure they can benefit from one another, but maybe they're not as close. But I think what, what I'm hearing and, and what, what you're kind of describing is this tearing down of that wall and allowing those things to be present with each other. Yeah. Allowing that to be the case. I think when you say that the truth is only contained by the word of God, which acknowledging that that is true. Yeah. We've talked about this lots of times where that can tend to become something I grasp intellectually. I grasp that with my mind. And yet just this afternoon, I'm having a conversation with my daughter who's upset about something and I'm pointing her to Philippians four and saying, look right here. I'm not sure if you've ever read it this way, but Philippians four says, don't be anxious about everything. But in all of these things, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and and God's peace will fill your hearts. And this is not just something that's true intellectually, factually, I read it and I, and I believe that. And somehow that (laughs) factual belief comforts me. It's something I actually do. Yeah. I put that into practice and stop. And when I'm anxious about something, present my requests to God and thank him for the opportunity to do that. That's a, that's a practice yeah. based dealing with everyday yeah. worries and yeah. troubles. And so it's something that, that I'm almost having to unlearn hmm. is that the word of God is not something that is just purely intellectually yeah. grasped. Yeah. It's to be grasped. It's, we love the Lord with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, all of, all of who we are. Something I'm more convinced of than ever is that we're whole persons and that salvation is holistic and we need God to save us in our physical bodies as much as we need him to save us in our spiritual state and relationship with him, like to be mentally and emotionally well, um, to be, um, whole people. Yeah. And I bet this was an interesting, has been and continues to be an interesting process for you. It is for me, but you even more so because, I think your identity is really tied up in being an academic and being a thinker, right? At least kind of traditionally you, for many years, right? That you were PhD, professor, all of that stuff, which is a very kind of intellectual art and practice. And so, I mean, has that been, like you were kind of talked about a dismantling or an unlearning Yeah, it's really true. And I I think about, uh, often I think about my, like how to narrate that 
yeah. scholarly identity yeah. because I don't produce a lot of scholarship. Right. I'm not writing articles. I'm not right. writing books. I don't really have a, um, a research program that I'm going after like a lot of scholars do. I've, I've spent most of my time teaching and, and supporting students and then serving the institution and not producing a lot of scholarly work. I like to think that my impact is through the students yeah. that I've impacted yeah. um, and, and kind of an exponential growth. Kind of pastoral in that um, There's this great, uh, I've been listening to a lot of uh, John Mark McMillan, who's mm. kind of a worship leader, but a uh, songwriter. And he's got this song um, that has a line at the end. And it's like a Wendell Berry reference. Mm. Shall I plant sequoias and revel in the soil of a crop I know I'll never live to reap? Hmm. It's a it's a line from the Mad Farmer poem that's a favorite of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about the students that I impact and, and the people that they will impact and then never seeing that and being okay with that. Yeah, That's way more important to me than my research program or writing books what a, uh, I, the act of faith that comes in farming and in that, right? That you're, you're, you're trusting that your work will be, God will, will use it despite the fact that you most likely will not experience that. And that's, you know, faith, learning faith and learning to, to live into that. But that's also true of the sermon. Yeah. That's also true of how you're impacting yeah. people on a weekly basis and how you preach and the rhythms of pastoral life. Yeah. And the the tendency to become very busy with that and and knowing that the sermon is the is the one way, not necessarily that you impact them, but that you mm-hmm. create mm-hmm. the space for God to impact them. Yep. Because that's the one day they show up. Right. You know they're going to hear the Bible if they show up that day. Right. They might not read it at home. Most likely will not read it at home. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's it's an act of faith. And one of the things that I've found so helpful recently, and I was just talking with Frosty Hansen about this this morning. He's back from Bolivia and we were having breakfast. One of the things that I have a practice that I've, been developing more and more and it's one of those things where like it's like a duh yes i should have been doing this for a long time we don't say that word in our house duh yeah oh why not because it's making fun of people (laughs) my little ponies say it sometimes but they're not allowed to say it they're naughty but this the importance of truly taking time in my sermon prep to stop and to say okay jim this is preaching well, this is coming together, people are going to like what you have to say, but are you listening <laughs> to what you're saying? And uh, that has been a humbling experience. And, you know, a lot of times I just kind of assume, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm learning. But to actually stop and, and to say, okay, well, I'm going to tell these people, what do you do with this? What I need to be asking myself that question. And just this last week, uh, on Sunday, Saturday night, I'm walking my dog and kind of running over things in my head, you know, as I usually do. And it just hit me that like, oh my goodness, this thing that I'm about to preach, I am absolutely guilty of 
in my relationship with my wife and basically the idea of like trying to conform other people into your image and rather than uh, empowering them to be themselves you know in the in the the way that god created them to be and i had to when i got home i just i had to apologize to her you know and it's one of those it was a is a moment where you know that was saturday night you know i was a few hours away from just kind of letting that letting that go and so when we talk about that uh the the farmer and and planting the seed and and with the faith one of the things that i'm really learning to value is preaching to myself and coming before my congregation as a hearer primarily and then allowing that to to shape how i'm preaching that's pretty standard preaching practice to learn the lesson of, I have to preach this to myself. I have to receive this word from God myself before I can communicate it to others. Otherwise it has that kind of plastic or fake quality to it. I only preach a couple of times a year, but whenever I do in my notes, I'll write this little phrase with like an asterisk Mm -hmm. preach the reality of God. And that keeps me, so a reminder to myself to keep, from preaching my own thoughts or my yeah. own ideas or preaching myself as opposed to trying to communicate this reality of the divine in that moment to other people. But you can still do that from a objective point, which I think is the danger, right? That you can still preach truth for them, <laughs> you know, without actually listening to it yourself. And that's, I think that's hard. That's a, that's a hard thing when you say, you know, it's a, a thing that we all learn yet. I, in my experience, there has to be a really deep intentionality about truly engaging with that and allowing yourself to. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Cause I think you're right. And I think that's probably my tendency as a person who tends to stay pretty objective and yeah. unengaged. I'll, I will preach the things that I know or the things that I've learned. But when you're preaching through the lectionary, Mm -hmm. the way that you have described Mm -hmm. your approach to the sermon, you're going to encounter texts that are not the one-off sermon texts. They are surprising and jarring and disruptive to like, these might not be the texts you would normally choose for yourself to preach. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I think that that is, probably the most helpful thing for me in that, right? Because since I'm not selecting the text and I am just being given, you know, these given, you know, I am choosing to submit myself to this, that I have no choice other than rather than to actually just see, well, what, why is this text here? Why is, what does this text have to say right now? And I am able to, from the beginning, kind of take my preference out of the equation because it's not my preference. You know, preaching Romans 13 on the first Sunday of Advent was not my choice. But that wasn't your idea. But uh, <laughs> I should have started out. All right, just so everybody knows, <laughs> this wasn't my idea. Um, so I think that has actually been really helpful. Like the yeah, but then then we go back to kind of what we're talking about of, well, where does the emotion and the objectivity and all of that stuff kind of all fit together and, and, um, and live in dialogue with each other. 
And what happens when you have a really busy week where there's a funeral that comes up or there's hospital visitations that need to be made or there's just a packed schedule as often happens in like Advent season, you're going to be having Christmas programs and different things that are going on. And that compresses your time to prepare the sermon such that you might not have adequate space or margin to get that personal impact. Yeah. And sometimes I find that to be a refreshing thing because when I'm forced to have to write a sermon in five hours or whatever it is that I have, right. That I've, I, my schedule is such that the, the realities of ministry and life on this particular week means I can only spend this amount of time on my sermon. I have to really strip it back and I have to say, Jim, you don't have time to be profound here. (laughs) You know, what does the scripture say? Preach what the scripture says and allow that to be enough. And so that actually is a, I think a helpful practice. I, I don't want to do that every week. Not that to say that I'm adding to the scriptures, but I think there is value to the, the art and the creativity and the bringing who God has made me to be into the sermon that I think is really critical to faithful preaching. But sometimes it's important to just, just say what the text says and remind people that this is what the text says and this is true. And people have preached the same sermon for thousands of years and it was as true in 642 as it is in 2019, 2020, whatever it is. <laughs> so I want to I wanna hear more about that because I was, as you were talking, I was imagining what your week is like and and trying to picture okay if if Jim had his ideal amount of time to spend on a sermon maybe there's no such yeah. thing but if you had your druthers <laughs> let's just say you did my druthers eh how much time or maybe a better question is confess true confession time how much time do you spend on the sermon or how much would you want to spend on a sermon like for those yeah. for those budding pastoral students out there <laughs> I remember hearing some crazy number in homiletics class where, like, every minute of your sermon needs to have, like, 20, maybe even, like, an hour of prep time. So, like, a 30-minute sermon needs to have 30 hours of prep time. That's insane. I mean, I guess if that's your only job, that's go for that. That's great. You're Andy Stanley. Yeah. For me... I think what I what I generally kind of shoot for or around is about ten hours of of sermon prep, and um, sometimes that comes in one day, or you know, a big chunk of it comes in one kind of eight hour block. A lot of times, what it looks like is a couple four hour blocks, and then a two hour kind of recap somewhere along the line. I think if I if I had a little more flexibility in my schedule. 15 hours I think would be something that I would I would be happy with but at the same time like the thing that makes my sermons worth hearing to some degree is the work that I'm doing with my congregation outside of my sermon you know sure. what I'm saying sure. so like the men's bible study I do on Monday where I get together with five old guys and we just drink coffee and talk about Matthew and the hospital visits I do and talking with people before and after bible study like those are the things that are I think just as important to my sermon as the actual study and prep and exegeting the Greek and whatever um 
And so I don't think I would want to spend much more time than I do on a sermon because that would take away from the things that I'm doing outside of the sermon that are adding value to the pastoral work that I feel like I'm called to. There's more to being pastor than just preacher. Yeah, absolutely. Is there any correlation between the amount of time you spend in that preparation and your openness, the relative impact of preaching to yourself? In other words, mm. does that happen when you only have six hours to prepare? Does that is that more likely to happen if you have 15 hours to prepare? Or what are the what are the factors that lead to yeah, that personal I, engagement with the Word of God that lets you preach in a way that's more authentic? I, one of the things I often remind myself, and I, I talk about sometimes the sermon as, as a thing that you have to respect, right? You have to respect the sermon. And there are weeks when I can sit down and I can write a sermon in three hours and it can be good, effective, speak to me, all of that stuff. There are times when it's, I feel like it's like wrestling an alligator, you know, like I just keep going in circles and nothing's coming and, and, and I'm, I'm just struggling. And then it gets to Sunday morning and sometimes I'm finally like hit a moment where I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, that's what this sermon is supposed to be. Sometimes I get up there on Sunday and I say, well, this is what this sermon is, <laughs> whether or not. Here goes nothing. And, yeah. And, and to some degree, those sermons can also be, ones that are faithful and effective and speak to me. Uh, I don't think there's really a thing to quantify it, but what I've been learning to do is regardless of how much time I have to spend reflection time at some point, kind of later on in the sermon prep to say, all right, just stop, listen here, be present with, with what is, what is being spoken to me, what I feel like is being spoken in this text and so if there is if there is one, I guess, thing that I would say this is essential to making sure this happened, it would just be this this time of sitting with the teaching, um, which is to me a little bit different than just sitting with the text. Right. Because I try to do that before I teach. But then after I kind of get this this whole thing kind of together, sitting there with that, like now that the sermon is complete, what am I saying and, and how I'm here. So I don't know if there is like a, a formula, you know, and I think that that's the whole point is that there is no formula. And, um, sometimes it works like this. Sometimes it works like that. Sometimes it doesn't work like this. Sometimes it doesn't work like that. And I sense just to come back to that theme of seasons, there are seasons of pastoral ministry where you do have that time yeah. where you are blessed with uh, steady weeks for four or five, six, maybe eight or 10 weeks in a row yeah. where that rhythm of sermon preparation is good. But I imagine there's other seasons that are, that are very turbulent and you get rocked or your family gets yeah. rocked by sickness or you're out or yeah. you travel or things are just different. Yeah. And there, I think of course there's those big moments, right? Those big crisis moments, whether it's a funeral or something in family or church or whatever, but what I have found to be more likely is just kind of the sneakiness of a busy schedule that you kind of start, you know, you add adding one thing here and one thing here and one thing here. And pretty soon you've, you've crushed your margins in so much that without even knowing it, uh, you, you suddenly 
So like a good example, like I used to carve out Tuesdays as my sermon day. And this was the day I'm going to work on my sermon. But uh, over the last six months, we had an intern and the intern could only be in on Tuesdays. And so we needed to do staff meetings on Tuesday instead of Wednesday. So I said, okay, I can do an hour and a half staff meeting. It won't cut in too much to my thing. But we do that there. Wrong! And then we have senior luncheons that are happening once a month. And quite often that once a month falls on a Tuesday. And so now I have a Tuesday where the whole morning is gone. And then from there, we have a few visits. And where before I used to think of Tuesday as this sacred or at least cut off moment. But now, since I'm doing stuff on Tuesdays, I plan a visit on a Tuesday here and there. And so like tomorrow, I showed you my, my schedule. I, it's just a full day. And I'm not complaining or, or saying, you know, you know, that's part of my, that's what I, what I do. But if someone would have asked me, you know, a year ago, would a Tuesday ever look like that? I would say no, but I've kind of dropped my guard on that a little bit and, and allowed my schedule to kind of fill itself up. And so what I'm having to do now is kind of get back to kind of cutting and rearranging and moving so that I have that time set aside for me in, in the prep of the sermon, because while the sermon isn't the only thing I'm doing, it is a really valuable thing that I'm doing. And, and I need to make sure that I'm giving myself the time and the space to, to engage with the scriptures and engage with the word, uh, in a, in a way that's gonna, gonna create the best opportunity for, for something powerful to happen. I wonder if that isn't really just how time works. Like we're only given a certain amount yeah. and we have to steward that time. Well, talk about managing our calendars or managing our schedules, but the time that we have to give is time to the sermon, time to your congregation, time with your wife and your daughter. And I tend to be, you know, pretty stingy with my time and not want to share that with others. And so it's a real challenge to me to, to open up and, and give myself or give my time away to those meetings to to building those relationships and reaching out with people where I'd really much rather just keep it all for myself. Sure. Yeah, and I and I think it it's just learning to embrace the seasons that come with it. Like you're saying, there are some seasons where it is going to be busier, and leaning into that, knowing that there may be a few weeks in a row where we don't have a lot going on, and to embrace that as well. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's. It's a developing thing, a, a living and breathing thing. Our schedules are that we need to to be aware of. It is nice to be brought into this conversation around this time of year, where it's true that many of us, although we might not have extra time, some of us have vacations planned yeah. and vacation time and time with family. But often we do feel busier at this time of year, and yet because of the season, that time is different. Yeah. At least there's a shift in our sense of time yeah. and how it all works and uh, the chance to be reminded to slow down or watch those same movies again or yeah. listen to those same songs again or or have those familiar rhythms of Christmas time mm-hmm. that remind us that we are beings that live in space and time. Yes. Yes. We're not just the floating, what James Smith calls, right, the head on a stick, but there is, these things matter in the time of year matter and, and it's okay, right? It's okay for us to be embodied and to, to be there. So that's my plan this, this Christmas to just kind of be there. 
drink the nog. This holiday season. I got this, I splurged a little bit on eggnog. I, I like eggnog, but I, I try to savor it. And I was at Peter's Gourmet Market or Peter's International Market, right? Talk to me. They have this eggnog from, I think it was called Hillshire Farms. It's a local farm. Hillshire Farms is not Not local, Hillshire. It was going. something. Keep going. A local farm in Michigan where they had a, what, it must have been a half pint of eggnog. Do you want to know how much it cost? $24.95. Okay, not that much. Okay. six ninety five dollars for a half pint That's of eggnog. That's steep. Plus $2 deposit for the glass bottle, which hopefully I'll get back when I finish this thing. Is that like a thing. growler of eggnog? <laughs> Similar. It's just a, a little guy. But uh, it was... I still got probably about one or two more swigs. Yeah, I've been drinking it out of like espresso glasses because <laughs> I want to savor it. But it is indulgent. I thought I was doing pretty well with like the $4, $4 bottle from Aldi. Oh, I went to go buy that stuff on December 1st. The special buy? Yeah, I went to go buy it on December 1st and the expiration date was November 30th. So I decided, you know what? Eggnog is not a not a card I want to play that's a shame. When it comes to uh, expiration dates. I like making it fresh at home. Have you really done that? I have really done that. No, Using no what? Eggs. Yes. Yolk mm, or all? Both. Okay. So you separate the yolks. Yeah. And then you mix the yolks and the sugar. And then you mix egg whites and sugar. Okay. And then you pour in... Well, actually, I do heavy cream and yeah. I also do whole milk so this is like the yeah. full on full fat yeah. full sugar version yeah. and the I think the idea is that you separate everything you blend it separately and then you bring it back together and that's what makes the nog so that kind of confirms it's so a, creamy. it confirms a fear that I think many of us have when it comes to eggnogs in that you're drinking raw egg yeah but it's been refrigerated the whole time okay cool then we're good just like Rocky Balboa. And even farm fresh eggs, did you know this? Farm fresh eggs, if you don't wash them, they'll never go bad. Well, that eventually they'll I go believe bad. that because we get our eggs from uh, some lady in our church who just has and chickens. And you don't have to refrigerate them. Yeah. You keep them on the counter. Yeah. And but as soon as fresh. you put them in the fridge, you got to keep them in the fridge. Right. That's the key. Speaking of handmade things, we just bought a uh, pasta maker or a pasta machine, a pasta roller. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a long story, but we bought a KitchenAid mixer. We returned it, and we got the pasta roller. We haven't used it yet. But Imagine it's a learning curve. I'm Well, yeah, it's it seems pretty simple. Flour and egg, mix it up, and then knead it, and then get it going. So I'll report back with our findings. I can't wait. Yeah. Two years from now, <laughs> people will be on the edge of their seats. Let's make it one month from now. Sounds good. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Jim. Merry Christmas, Matt. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to the Pastoral Calling Podcast with Jim Shamaria and me, Matt Loverin. Join us every two weeks as we start a new conversation about life and leadership in the local church. If you like us, make sure you follow us on SoundCloud or on iTunes, and also tell all your friends so they can join the conversation. <laughs>